back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens. Hard to believe we're already in May. My engineer Pam is sitting in there rolling her eyes at that thought. But we are. It is already May. Uh, We just came through. May the 4th be with you, followed by Revenge of the Sith 5th. And now we're starting off on a new month. Um, lots of lots of big things happening in the movie world, as you all know. Uh, Avengers: Infinity War crossed the one billion dollar mark, the fastest movie to the first movie to ever do that, uh, the fastest. So that's very exciting. And in looking at the summer lineup, uh, Han Solo is coming up. I'm really looking forward to that, uh, as so many people are. Deadpool is coming up. Ant-Man and the Wasp. We've got a lot of action stuff happening, but we also have some other incredible non-comic book gems happening. Uh, For those of you new to the show, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, You can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online, in the U.S. and abroad, around the globe, 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here. At 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AdrenalineRadio.com. And if you want to watch a live stream because station owner Nick really likes a live stream, um, even though we do shoot to camera and then have a subsequent post-production video that's available in a couple weeks, uh, but you can go to the Adrenaline.com Facebook page and you can watch the live stream of the show. Of course, why you would want to just see me, I don't know. But... There is some really cool, really cool Avengers Infinity War merchandise on display, uh, including Iron Man Funko Pop. I'm very happy to own that. Uh, but we've got some fascinating guests today. And that this is what Behind the Lens is all about, where we go behind the lens and below the line. And I am very honored to have one, to have both of these filmmakers with us today. Uh, first up at the quarter hour mark is going to be Benjamin Nolo. I hope I'm saying his last name right, uh, but I'm sure he'll correct it for me. He is the founder of Magic Lantern, Lantern Pictures and Exodus Cry, an organization dedicated to abolishing sex trafficking. He is here today with his new documentary, Liberated. At first, you think it's just about the fun and frolic in over spring break. But as you quickly realize, that is not the intent, purpose, nor what we see unfold. Uh, As in this day and age with Me Too, uh, with all the harassment issues uh, that are happening, he digs really deep and gives great new meaning and context to what's happening at spring break, what social mores, what psychological issues, uh, what trends, what is social media, what is culture imparting onto men that makes them think it's allowable to go so far as to gang rape young women on a beach during spring break with hundreds of people watching. Um, it's very, it's very intriguing for many people. It may be hard to watch, but I can't wait to talk to Benjamin at the half hour mark. I am thrilled. John Keane is with us to talk his documentary after Auschwitz. This is by far not only one of the best documentaries of 2018, one of the best films of 2018, as John follows the lives of six women who survived the Holocaust. 
and uh, he had done a prior documentary, Swimming in Auschwitz, where he had spoken with, I think, 18, 18 different people. Uh, 15 years ago, he made that. And these six women stood out, and he just knew he had to follow their lives after liberation from the concentration camps. It is These are amazing, amazing women. Some have now passed since his interviews. Um, archival footage fills the documentary to give you context and history. Uh, so I'm very, very uh, honored to talk to John at the half-hour mark. But before we get on to the more serious subjects, we're going to lighten things up with one of my fa- a man dear to my heart, a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful friend, Eugenio Derbez. Um, his new movie, Overboard, just opened on Friday, number two film right behind Avengers Infinity War. It is a remake of the 1987 film with Gold- beloved film uh, with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell. Uh, this one stars Eugenio and Anna Faris. They do a gender reversal. So instead of, whereas in the original, Goldie was the one with the lost memory here, Eugenio is the rich playboy with the lost memory. Um, Also, the children get swapped from boys to girls. It sets up daddy-daughter moments that are unforgettable. But as usual, with every one of Eugenio's films, we sat down for a very fun-filled one-on-one about the overboard. Take a listen. There he is. Hello. Hello, Eugenio. It's so good to you? see you again. Oh. So good to see you. Oh, my God. Well, you know, last year we talked about what was coming with this film. <coughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I probably I told you a little bit about it. A little it. bit? <laughs> I love it better than the original. Oh, Thank you for seeing that. It is better than the original. Eugenio. If you see one after another one, I, I think you can tell the difference. But uh... <laughs> this, this is how you do a remake. Well, thank you very much. You and your partners at Three Paws, you guys should be so thrilled. Oh, thank you. With thank this you very much. Film. I mean, you have all the touchstones of the original film that we all know and love. Mm-hmm. Very important key scenes. When I saw the binocular scene, I, my heart almost <laughs> jumped out of my throat. Just yeah. brilliant. Some key lines of dialogue. But with the gender reversal... That was smart, right? This, it's brilliant. And yeah. especially because the father-daughter bonding always... The heartstrings just... Yeah. This, it is just brilliant on so many levels. Oh, thank you very much. I saw last night, I was so excited. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. You you make me feel so good because, you know, um, we were nervous because we know how beloved is this uh, movie for Americans. Um, It's like an uh, iconic uh, comedy, it's a classic. So... Uh, we were always like kind of nervous when you touch something that is so important for so many people. But I think we we reimagined the story in a very nice way. We respected the story because it's it's tricky when you're doing a remake. You're doing a remake because you love that movie, but at the same time you always want to do something different to not in order not to do exactly the same thing. And sometimes happens that you go too far and you mm. end up doing something completely different that it doesn't make sense. 
So it was it was tricky to keep the essence of the movie, but at the same time add some freshness and something mm -hmm. different. And the role reversing was, uh, I think, was a good idea. Oh, First of all, because you avoid uh, um, direct c comparisons mm -hmm. between the the actors, and second, because also we're breaking stereotypes. That that for me was uh, another plus. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the the natural thing would have been. Me doing the carpenter, you know, the Latino guy. We saw you do that in Girl in Progress. We don't, <laughs> no, we don't need to see exactly, that. No, exactly. We don't need to see that again. Exactly. No, this works so well. And what I love is that the supporting characters here, there are more of them, but everybody is fully fleshed out. Mm -hmm. Every character here is very fleshed out, and we get to see more of the world, more of Leo's world, more of Kate's yes, world. Yes. And then working on the yacht and having Leo's whole family, that gives us a whole, you know, goldfish in a bowl. Yes, yes. Kind of metaphor for how Leo has been living his life. Exactly. I'm glad you noticed that. Oh, I'm really glad. <laughs> the detail. How, were you glad to not be directing this one and just acting and producing? Well, you know, <laughs> yes, it always happens to me that I, I want to be directing all the time. I just didn't want to. I, I've been really careful about my directing career here in the U.S. because it's a new country. And um, I know that uh, when you're talking about drama, the entire world um, cries about the same things. You know, we, we, we feel sad or we cry about love. Uh, death, etc. But uh, when you're talking about humor, it's so different. It depends on where you were born. It depends. It depends on your age. Depends on your uh, economic status. It depends on so many many things mm -hmm. that it's so hard. Everyone laughs of different things. So I, I was trying to understand the market mm -hmm. before directing a movie, a comedy. But um, I'm always like, I want to put my hand everywhere, but uh, but I'm very respectful at the same time as an actor. So probably the next one is going to be my, my first uh, movie directing in English here in the U.S. But I got to tell you that this is just absolutely spectacular with the crossover, with the cultural crossover, and... The Spanish subtitles, the performances are so strong yeah. that you don't need to read the subtitles. You know <laughs> what is happening. And then having the backdrop of the telenovela set against Leo's life, <laughs> you know, it just works so well. I'm glad. And, and you know, the actors, um, uh, all the Mexican cast are huge they're in huge. Mexico. I mean, they're, they're our, oh. one of our best Fernando Lujan, I've seen him in so yes. many things over the years. Yeah. He's amazing. Amazing, yes, I know, I know. All of them are amazing. It's like I'm, all of them have starred by their own in a movie, so they're like stars by themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that I, I could put them together. In Mexico, it's a big deal because you mm -hmm. know, uh, being able to put all these big stars in an American movie, it's a, for me, it's a, a pleasure. And it's a risk, too. And it's a risk, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, after Latin Lover last year, I mean, you know, I think you're proving that you can yeah. do this crossover market and you can do it and populate it with the Hispanic stars. That, and, and you know what? I, I was risking uh, to do this uh, because I grew up in a country where we speak a different language. Mm -hmm. 
actually happens in the entire continent. Uh, we've been watching since we were kids Hollywood movies about um, white people in the U.S. And we love your stories. We love your actors. We love your movies. We are in love with Hollywood. So I would like, probably it happens the same, the opposite. Probably if they start knowing our actors, our stories, they're going to fall in love with our movies. So, uh, and it happened. I mean, you can see Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuarón, González Iñárritu. Uh, I, I think it, 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 you might fall in love with our actors, our, our directors, our movies, mm -hmm. and I'm taking the risks. Well, I mean, you know, we've talked so many times since La Misma Luna. I mean, it's like every time you do a film, <laughs> and I was watching your TV stuff on the Spanish channels <laughs> long before I ever saw La Misma Luna. Yeah. And every once in a while, I still catch your old shows somewhere <laughs> on there. But, you know, comedy is comedy, drama is drama, performance is performance, and touching the emotions of the audience, that's global, that's universal. Yes, yes, yes. And that really... We really see that with this film. And you know, I'm very curious because this could have fallen apart if you and Anna did not have the right chemistry. Yes. Your timing, the two of you, your comedic timing is, it's impeccable. <laughs> it is impeccable. How, how challenging was it to develop that ebb and flow that the two of you have? Because it's like, or hapless Leo, and then sarcastic, biting Kate. And it just goes back and forth, back and forth, until we finally have that meld and yeah. meeting. Well, it took a lot of work, honestly. Um, I mean, the chemistry was... Um, I, I, in the first second we met, we noticed we had a lot of chemistry. And that's hard to, to, to find, because it has happened to me before, that sometimes you meet your co-star and uh, nothing happens. But in this case, thank God, we since we met the minute we met, we we, we felt that chemistry. We we had a lot of fun on, on set. Um, I was kind of scared because I know she's so funny. But you know what relaxed me a lot? That the the, the first scene we worked together and the first take we did, the first thing she did, she she said, uh, "Was I funny?" And I was like. What are you talking about? And she's like, no, I, I just want to know if I'm I'm funny because I'm I'm a comedian. I was like, Anna, what are you talking about? Went, no, I was a comedian by accident. So she told me her story, and I was like, she's so humble, she's so down to earth that I immediately got relaxed, and I was like, no, I'm the one who should be worried because I, I, it's not my language. I'm trying to be funny in another country, in another language. And we're like, what are you talking about? You're really funny. So we were always like playing this thing that we were really supportive and and I was really obsessed about timing so I was always going to her uh, dressing room or, or makeup and we were running lines all the time to make you know to, to get the the timing mm -hmm. the pace and we had a lot of fun and, and and we were finding always like you know these nuances on mm -hmm. the timing on the delivery so it, it was great working with her because no no not all of your co-stars want to rehearse that much. Right. And she was like, no, no, let's do it until we nailed it. So she was really, really supportive. Yeah, and of course, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, the father-daughter dynamic is yeah. just these three girls and your relationship with them. 
I mean, you had me tearing up in the limo scene. Oh, yeah. I did not tear up watching the Goldie Hawn, her <laughs> Russell version. I know, I know. I admit that. <laughs> but here we have a little girl pedaling as hard as she can on a bicycle that her daddy just taught her to ride. And it's like... Breaks your heart. I know. That was killer. It's always difficult casting children. It's always difficult. I mean, Hannah has been around forever, and Hannah's amazing. But you're, and your two little ones... I mean, they've done some spectacular work yeah. in Dolly Parton's Coat of Many Colors. Um, but still, to get that combination and to have you be able to have that relationship with them, was that work easier than working with Anna to develop the comedic timing? Because this was all about emotion with the girls. You know, I, I've been working with kids for um, a long time. That's just because you're a kid at heart. <laughs> and I think I... I it's crazy because um, probably before La Misma Luna, I have I had no idea how to deal with kids, no idea at all. But uh, since I started working that movie, the director Patricia Reagan back then, she said you have to start um, uh, do, uh, constructing a, you need to construct a relationship with the kid behind cameras in order to, to have something organic on screen. So I noticed that it worked so well. I spent a lot of time with the, the, with the kid, mm -hmm. and I started doing that in the, 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 the next movies. And in this one, it was the same. We had a, an amazing relationship with the, with the girls, always. I mean, I, I have pictures. Uh, I don't want to take your time, but I, I, I probably need to find them in my cell phone. How hard they cried the last day we, we, when, when we wrapped. Mm -hmm. They were crying so much. They, they were like, honestly, it was so touching. Everyone was in tears when they were saying goodbye on the, the, their last day because we became a family for two months, a real family. Mm -hmm. And they, they were really attached to Anna and, and to me at the end of the movie because we were spending time together, not on set, but always uh, behind cameras. We were always, let's go buy a, a, an ice cream. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. We were a real family. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that was going to pay off at the end on, on screen. And, and I think it did. Oh. And you're wonderful oh, always. Okay. Thank you, you very much. You know I love you. Thank always. you. Oh, okay. I just liked it. And that was Ahenia Derbez. If you haven't seen it, see it this is one case i can heartily endorse a remake and yes it is better than the original um it's fat overboard is just i am head over heels in love with overboard so now let us bring on the very wonderful benjamin now how do you say your last name benji nolo nolo okay just like law nolo yeah contendra. the t is silent just like nolo contendra so welcome, welcome to Behind exactly. the Lens. Thank you so much. Um, I know I missed out yeah, on... thank you for I, having me on. I missed out on our interview in, stu in uh, uh, you know, last month. Um, I know Sylvia... Oh, yeah, no problem. Sylvia told you why. <laughs> um, but I'm so glad that you would come on the show today. Um, this is, I have to say, Liberated blew my mind. You think liberated, you see the trailer, mm. you see the poster, the one sheet, and everything. You think spring break, it's party hardy. Everyone's having a good time. Mm. That is not mm. what this mo documentary <laughs> is by any stretch of the imagination. You dissect culture, 
the sexual culture, societal mores, and you bring it all to the surface with this documentary. It just Mm. happens to occur during spring break. And I have to say, it's a very sad commentary on um, the students and the people that participate in spring break, the mentality and the actions that they are doing. Gang rapes Mm. on a beach with hundreds Mm. of people watching, that is just unforgivable in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And, you know, you bring yeah. all of this to light. Yeah. Yeah. I. Should, should I jump in? Jump in. Jump in, Benji. <laughs> uh, no, thanks for kind of breaking, breaking that down and your thoughts on that. Uh, are you guys hearing some interference on your end? I don't know if it's just me. I don't hear anything here, Pam. Do you hear anything? No. Okay. It's coming through clear. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, your line's coming um, clear. Yeah, I mean, just, just, just to say that, you know, we didn't even intend to make a documentary about spring break. That was not what we were up to in going down there. We were making a documentary about the larger sexual culture in America, but it was on our first trip down there that we ran into a situation where girls were being sexually violated. And it didn't happen until the last day of our trip down there. And so we left with this thought of, is this part of the normal experience of what happens at spring break? And we, we left with more questions than we had answers. And so we decided to go back the next year. Mm-hmm. And the project really just evolved over the course of several years. Um, and looking more deeply at some of the dynamics happening in spring break. But then it was in examining all that, that we started to question, you know, what's underneath this. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, it was one thing to kind of discover and begin to expose the normalization of sexual violation at spring break. But we also felt a responsibility to look deeper at where are these attitudes and behaviors coming from? We didn't want to just leave it as, you know, MTV Spring Break Part 2. Right. We wanted to have a more thoughtful and introspective kind of examination of what's underneath this behavior. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the documentary begins to reflect back to some of the socializing influences in our society today. Yeah, this is definitely... It kind of shows the intersection between... Uh, I was going to say, this is, oh, yeah, def- go ahead. this is definitely not Girls Gone Wild. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah, and and I love the fact that you you pick Panama City Beach, Florida, obviously because that is where the climactic moments of the documentary where we find out about the gang rape um where that occurred. You also mm-hmm. have Cancun, mm-hmm. Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um and you give mm-hmm. us the two girls that you have as your primary interview subjects in Cancun, Mexico. They're very thoughtful. They're very retros. They've got a lot of uh, retrospection into the actions yeah. and even mm-hmm. what they're doing, and especially the one who realizes, "Oh my God, I have a 15-year-old little sister." Yeah, and yeah. that's one of the interesting things you bring out is that with all the interviews that you're doing, people are imbibing and participating in the activities that are happening. But then they are, in 2020 hindsight, 
then it dawns on them, oh my God, this is horrible. Um, yeah. That I found yeah, surprising. Because, yeah, Kimmy in particular and Farah as well, though, were very self-reflective about their own journey at spring break and about their own journey through their coming-of-age years. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, like you say, both the dynamic of their sort of immersion into the culture on one hand, as well as their critique of it and self-reflection about it on the other hand, is what makes a really powerful point that the documentary makes, which is, you know, this idea that while the the culture is selling this uh, us this idea that we are these autonomous, independent, empowered individuals by participating in XYZ, actually, uh, there's a degree to which the uh, the pressure and the the sort of narrow story that's told about what it means to be a, a woman mm-hmm. or a man or a sexual being is actually pressuring people into conformity. So it's like these stories are told. It's a very, uh, it's a very narrow, single story that's told. These gender scripts that were fed and these scripts about sexuality um, that pressure us into conformity, but at the same time are selling us the idea that we're being rebels by adopting this way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. And that's the delusion and that's the lie that we kind of expose is um, that actually to be truly liberated would be to reclaim your identity from the culture yeah. and adopt a way of being in the world that isn't um, kind of exclusively imposed upon you in these certain narrow ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, what I find striking is you start off the documentary uh, with the guys and the guys in their braggadocious ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all have been there. We all have seen it. You know, what happens when guys get together, throw alcohol into the mix, throw a loose situation such as spring break into the mix, and it's madness and mayhem. And so much testosterone mm-hmm. flowing that, <laughs> that, that you're wading through yeah. it. Um, and I found that very interesting that you start with that. You really set the stage for what everybody is, for what used to be the norm. And which we're now finally start, mm-hmm. hopefully seeing a shift with that, thanks to the Me Too movement and mm-hmm. everything coming to light. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the release of yeah. of Liberated, the timing could not be more perfect, given what is happening in our world over the past couple of years with all with Me Too and all of the the sexual harassment cases mm-hmm. coming to light, and especially now, you know, yeah. right after your film debuted, and of course now it's what on Netflix, so everyone can see it. You know, we got the Bill Cosby verdict in. So, uh, it, more timely, yeah. you could not get, yeah. Benji. You could not have. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, it's I'm, crazy. I'm curious. The timing worked out. I'm curious how you, you know, starting with the guys and working your way through, and then really establishing mm-hmm. the scenario and the mindset of the people at Spring Break before bringing in some experts to, to interview. Um, how did you go about developing mm-hmm. that time, that through line? Because you could have gone in mm. so many directions. That had to be extremely yeah. difficult. 
Yeah, and it took us, you know, years to edit for that reason. I mean, partly because Spring Break only happens once a year, and so we were limited to the amount of filming that we could do. But also, just there were there were so many directions that we could go in. Mm-hmm. And with regards to some of the guys that are featured at the beginning of the film and kind of following them around in their spring break revelry, I think that that part of what we that is revealed through that is a mindset and an mm-hmm. attitude of entitlement to women's bodies. And for us, that was really important to see because it's the mindset and the attitude that transcends environments like spring break. And, um, and I think that's really important to understand that, that this isn't just about spring break. It's about a mindset and an attitude that is um, instilled in boys growing up in this culture through the process of their socialization by virtue of the stories that we tell about what it means to be a man in culture. And so if you talk to Shay, he would tell you, one of the guys that's featured, mm-hmm. that his going out and hooking up with all these girls and pushing past their no, and um, posing in front of the bloody sheets of a girl whose virginity he had just taken uh, with a big thumbs up, all of that was a sign of, like, male status Mm -hmm. and getting approval from other men Mm -hmm. about, you know, what it means to be a real man. And that attitude is universal in our culture, in in male peer culture. I experienced it growing up. Every, virtually every guy I know mm. has, at some degree or another, experienced that. And so I think that that's one important part of, of what, you know, begins to be unearthed and exposed in the early part of the documentary is this thread of men's entitlement to women's bodies, viewing women as existing for my pleasure and and then that thread goes all the way through, yeah. like you said, to the point of gang rape. But to see the gang rape as this isolated, aberrant incident, disconnected from the rest of the culture and the attitudes and behaviors that are produced in the culture would be a mistake. Right. It's that same thread of men's entitlement. And that's why, you know, sexual violation of women uh, is at a pandemic level. One in four, one in five women are sexually assaulted during their time in college. It's, this is not a few bad apples out there. This is a cultural phenomenon. So, like you said, uh, we've entered a new era with the Me Too and everything like that, and I hope that we keep pressing into what's happening right now in this cultural movement moment that is elevating the severity of sexual violation and saying this is not something to joke about, it's not something to wink at, this is something to take seriously, and we need to understand why it's happening so that we can begin to change the way that our, our boys and even young women are socialized in this culture into their construction of their identity. Well, you know, and I'd be remiss not to mention, you know, Exodus Cry, um, which you head up, mm-hmm. which is dedicated to abolishing sex trafficking. Um, that I found extremely interesting yes. about you um, after Dion Taylor and his film Traffic, because he wrote he wrote the film after he got an email from his daughter's school warning parents about sex mm. trafficking of 12, 15, mm. 12 to 15, 16-year-olds in a, a suburban yeah. mall outside Sacramento. Um, 
I mean, this is yeah. also a pandemic, and it all, and I think to a large degree, it yes. falls the same kind of mindset that you're exploring here in Liberated. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's you know, sex trafficking is again one of it. It's a symptom of the way that our culture socializes young boys and girls into their conceptions of gender and sexuality. And so if you can kind of see that as kind of the, the root system of this exploitation tree that is resulting in this rotten fruit of so many kinds of sexual violation happening in our world today, mm-hmm. it all kind of comes down into these, these ideas of our conceptions of gender and sexuality. So to go back to your previous point, you mentioned kind of the form and the shape of the documentary and the different directions we could go in. And one of our thoughts was, you know, should we just allow this to be a veritary exploration of um, spring break hookup culture, or should we pull back at moments to create um, more of a critique and a, and a structure around that to help provide an interpretive lens to, to understand what you're seeing? Mm-hmm. And we, we opted for the latter because we felt like the discussion around these things is so vital and so important. And um, I'm a firm believer in you let your audience read between the lines. They're intelligent enough to kind of figure it out. But I felt like what the professionals offered in this film was absolutely essential mm-hmm. and um, in, in kind of helping to provide some of that structure and that interpretive lens for a lot of these dynamics that we're seeing and, and yeah, just how important that is. I mean, you know, I, this is a documentary that everyone should see. And dare I even say it, parents need to see this. Even mm-hmm. even parents of college-age <laughs> college kids, parents need to see this yeah. documentary. Because so much of Parents the, of tweens. Of tweens, especially. Because, of course, yeah. you know, parents are the ones who are imparting values and mores on their children in addition to what society imparts. And if anything is going to nip it in the bud... It needs to start. That's the best place for it to start, is at home. Yeah. And I know right there yeah, I sounded sure. like my father, but <laughs> but that really, as you get older and you see how life plays out, that's exactly where we're at. Well, one of the things that Kimmy says in the documentary towards the end, she says it's a struggle growing up. And that was one of the lines that just, really has resonated with me and I think captures kind of the tragedy of coming of age in today's culture is that we face so many pressures that are unique to previous generations by virtue of media and technology and social media and all these things. The way that we get stories today is just so much different than any other time in history. Yeah. And so I think that liberated represents kind of this moment where we're just stopping to take an inventory for this social experiment that we've all grown up in. None of us signed up for, and what are the implications of it? And so, like you said, I think it's really important for parents in order to be able to identify with the struggles that young boys and girls, young men and young women face today um, through their coming-of-age years. Mm -hmm. Because I, I just don't think that that parents can possibly understand their world um, 
just by virtue of, of kind of observing, you know, I think a documentary like Liberated will help give a much more palpable insight into those pressures and those struggles and how they can be a part of building relational equity with their kids through their coming of age years mm -hmm. to, you know, help provide some stabilization and some wisdom and, and, uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, Benji, I have to move on from you to our next guest because we're going to talk yep. about the Holocaust and after Auschwitz. So um, we're oh going my. from one heavy subject into another heavy subject. <laughs> but I really, <laughs> I want to talk. I really want to have you back on the show and talk more about this, Benji, um, and more about Exodus Cry. So Anytime. I'm going to reach out to Em and have her set something else up for us. Great. Yeah, anytime. I'd love it. I really appreciate you guys' show, and it's an honor to be on with you. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, Benji, thank you so much. And, again, everybody, liberated on Netflix now. Thanks, Benji. Thanks. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. And now we talk to my fellow Philadelphian, John Keane. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks, Welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. We are a hearty, we are a hearty group of Philadelphians for sure. I'll <laughs> tell you, we are. Thank you for holding on while I wrapped up with with Benji. I mean, I, I've got two tough subjects here today on the show. Um, you know, I got to listen to the end of the interview, and I thought it was really interesting, and it ties in nicely to um, to I think what we're going to talk about. <laughs> That's <laughs> somehow I always manage to do this scheduling like that. I don't know how. But um, after Auschwitz, it is by far one of the best films of 2018 and, for my money, the best documentary that I have seen so far this year. This is incredible, John. Well, Even, thank you. That's high praise. I appreciate that. Okay. And this is coming from an owl. Okay? <laughs> I, my, my Uncle Lee went to Temple. It's, it's okay. Okay. All right. Um. This your journey on making this film. I love the journey. The, your journey of this started more than fifteen years ago. Correct. When you did interviews with eighteen people for your documentary "Swimming in Auschwitz," but and right. I can see why these six women. These six women are some of the most amazing women I have ever, ever had the pleasure and privilege to be exposed to through film or any other fashion talk about lives lived and oh, I, uh, I absolutely agree with you i mean it's like i i people ask me about what i've taken away from this film and I, i'm i'm i am a better person for having spent 15 years of my life with these women there's no question like i i feel almost selfish that i get to do what i do I mean, this is, I mean, and obviously after doing Swimming in Auschwitz, you had to follow up with these women what happened to them after they were liberated. And these journeys and getting these personal stories of the next 70 years of their lives, it, it is just, you sit there with mouth agape. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's where the, the story came from. I was working on the first film, and I think Erica says something about the moment of liberation, feeling the sun on her face for the first time, mm -hmm. and then says the rest of the day wasn't so great. And it was the first time I realized that liberation was a terrible day for them. Yeah. It's so obvious, but we never stopped to think about it 
in American history. We just stopped learning history when the war ended. Mm-hmm. Well, so for me, it became a fascination as to how people move on from trauma. How do we try to heal? Where do we fit in? Where is home? All these themes. And to me, these are themes that are relatable. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have to have been in a concentration camp to feel alienated, to feel like an other. Mm-hmm. So I think this film resonates because of that, because everybody can tap into it. Oh, I mean, a- absolutely. And, you know, as you're listening to these women, and, and what I love are the histor- the archival footage that you, in- that you bring in. Um, some of that footage I think we may have seen or something similar in the documentary that was out last year about Anne Frank um, with uh, told through, you know, actually pulling out the diaries and then memoirs of her father and things that he had written and said. And there was some of the footage in there uh, talked a lot about the British coming to liberate. Russians liberated, the British liberated, and then eventually, and it didn't really cover, but Eisenhower. So you had all these different forms of liberation happening from the Soviets, from the British, from the Americans. And that, you know, the British wanted to feed the people because they were starving, but they hadn't eaten for so many years. They couldn't eat anything. Um, Eisenhower was much more pragmatic in wanting everybody to remember, remember these people, remember these days. And And how prescient of him to do that. Oh, my God. I mean, absolutely. You know, you look at those. And then you see and then you get to see the women vote for Eisenhower. The impact that Eisenhower had on them. They get to go back and cast a vote as citizens. Well, one cast for Stevenson. Let's not forget. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Let's not forget. But that that taps into where we are today. I mean that's that's that they understand democracy in a way that we don't. Well, and that's one of the interesting things that you put together as you go on this journey of these women, they have experienced so much. So more than any of us will ever ever see and their perspective is through eyes that most of us don't have uh, the benefit of and you know when they talk about when the Korean War was starting and most of them were still in Europe and they were wondering oh god is this going to be World War 3 are we being drugged back in again Right, and then as the decade, you, you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with that that's exactly what I'm trying to do make us look at something through other eyes through their eyes because they interpret history in a different way than we do. Oh, you know, I mean, I was very lucky. My grandmother, um, she was from Bremen, Germany. My grandfather was from Goslar. My grandmother right. worked for, she came over working for the consulate from the Netherlands. She was a governess to the, his wow. children. So when she came, she came over and came in through Boston and, and lived up there and worked there and became a citizen. But all my life it was drummed into me by her. Because during the war, she then was saving money. She and my grandfather trying to bring our relatives. They weren't Jewish, but they were still in some of the small towns. They were being, you know, bombed and persecuted and starving. So they were trying to bring them over. So I grew up hearing stories and seeing it through the eyes of then how precious it was to become an American citizen. Right. And not just what it means to be a citizen, but to to proudly to understand what democracy means. Yes, which means when we see something that we're not we don't like, we can we can raise our fist and we can raise our voices, which is the true gift of democracy. They understand that in a different way, yet they're still afraid to 
use their voice so much because they were silenced for 35 years. Nobody asked them what happened. That's right. And then and to hear the trepidation in the voices of some of these women about, I don't know if I can talk about it, especially Renee, Renee mm-hmm. Firestone, our, our lovely designer, who actually lived in <laughs> Allentown for a while. Um, yeah, yeah, she worked at, at Felix Menswear. <laughs> you know, um, but... She, but to hear her talking, she didn't know if she would ever find the words. And then all of a sudden, after seeing footage of bodies being bulldozed. She yeah, said, 35 she, years later, thirty for Renee, it was 32 years after liberation before she finally addressed what happened to her. Yeah. But to see and to see it in the context of how she lived her life for each one of them, Linda Sherman. I mean, she ended up, eventually went from Hoboken, New Jersey, to California, was a nanny for Ricardo Montalban. Uh, what a, and what a great story that is. And she tells stories of hanging out, meeting Clark Gable and Roddy McDowell. And, and what, what a crazy life for a lady like that. Yeah, and, but you hear, still hear the fear in her voice. Like when, oh, she yeah. sent, when she sent her child to school, when he had to get on the bus, he couldn't join the Boy Scouts. Because they were being taken to the right. jamboree in a truck, and the last time she had ever been on a truck, she was hauled off on a cattle car and taken to a concentration camp. Right. She would never. She never did a formal interview other than with me, because she never wanted to be on a list where she was known as a Jew. She never joined a synagogue, because she was afraid there was a list somewhere, and that if they if the Nazis came back, she would be on a list. That was a fear that she had till the day she died. Yeah, and uh, I mean. How did you get these women to sit down and open up and let you go on this journey with each of them, you know, cataloging well, the, fir- the their first lives. film I did, well, you, you mentioned the first film, which is Swimming in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. That film was a study of spiritual resistance, how we stay strong during impossible times. Mm-hmm. So because we were talking about a topic that wasn't so much mired in grief, um, it was a different conversation, and then I knew them so well five years later when I did the interviews for After Auschwitz, we had a deeper emotional connection right from the start. And as a documentarian, it makes it so much nicer not to have to go through the 30 minutes of just let's get to know each other. Right. We got right into it. And with a film like this, a documentary like this, it would take more than 30 minutes to establish any kind of trust or comfort. Oh, it's incredible what I can talk about with, with, with the women now, with, with Renee and Erica and Eva, who are still with us. We can talk about topics that I could never have gotten to in a three- or four-hour interview. We get, we, we're so much deeper now because we know each other so well. But, but this film does have a lot of that. It, it has some, you know, Renee talking about um, her mother and how she thinks about her mother in a gas chamber. That's not something that you normally would bring up in an in a initial interview. Right. I mean, that's some deep stuff. Yeah. Or the nightmares. The nightmares right. of bodies in blood and the ground yeah. being in the concentration camp and the ground covered in blood. I, and how about finding, and the fact that we have color footage of that, 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 gave, that, that kept me up for a few nights after I found it. Because you know, we never see that footage in color. How difficult was it to find some of that footage, like the color footage? I didn't think any color footage existed of those times. So that fasc- a lot of your archival stuff fascinated me. And the fact that the ladies, they actually were still able to have some of their family photographs 
despite everything that happened, uh, you know, somehow, somewhere in their families, some of their photographs were, were saved, survived. Well, for most of them, if they had, if they had family in a, in a country that wasn't in war, usually the America, some pictures survived. Mm-hmm. But the lady like Rena, Rena Drexler, she had nothing. The yeah. first picture of her life that exists is her wearing her Auschwitz dress three weeks after liberation. Mm-hmm. As far as the other stuff... The museum in D.C., U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, has everything digitized. So you can find a lot there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Imperial War Museum in, in, in England has a lot. And then it's just hours and hours and hours of, of Internet. I mean, thank goodness the Internet actually has some positive uses. <laughs> because yes. you have access to the world. You just have to go digging. You know, how did you develop your through line? You know, you knew you wanted to cover the next 70 years of their lives, but you really touched on very significant aspects, how they survived immediately after liberation. Um, I love, love the whole gathering up of British parachutes made of silk and painting Mm -hmm. them and selling them because circle skirts were the big fashion of, of the day. Um, right. I mean, the ingen- and now Renee has her clothes at LACMA. She's one of the most influential designers of the 20th century. I know. I, it's, <laughs> it's phenomenal. But, you know, yeah. how did you, you know, pick, you know, decide how to break this up? Because you go from that into right. m- meeting okay. their I, I did four complete edits of this film. Oh, my The God. first edit was using flashback footage and first film footage and present day. Didn't work. Second film was my homage to Christopher Nolan, where I tried to mess with the timeline and jump around. No. Didn't work. Third film, I tried to do uh, uh, modern, uh, this sort of parallel pathway. Didn't work. And it wasn't until we went linear that each woman's sort of through line or crucial theme, like Renee, the idea of even with all these successes, I still think about who's not with us. With Erica, the concept of where is home, where do I belong, where do I fit in. Mm-hmm. All that became so clear. And once each woman had that emotional through line, the film came together. But it took about four complete edits of a film to do that. Yeah, and the way that So I have three failures before <laughs> this one. And the way you break it down so that we go through the significant life points that everybody can relate to when you meet your when you meet your husband, when you get married, who was at your wedding, who wasn't at your wedding. Uh, you know, when you have children, should you have children? That was extremely interesting yeah. when they opened up about, you know, should we even have children? Uh, right. In, this in the world, world, what kind of world are we putting kids into? You know, and then finally when they have children, protecting them, not talking about it. You know, them growing up, you know, being in the workplace. All of these, you know, seminal moments in life. Every woman has a very similar path. They really do when you look at it. Um, yeah, they're, they're, and that's the, that's the fun thing about this film. There are, there are commonalities. There are yeah. common themes. But everybody had their own path to get there. And that was the problem of her making it. You got 420 years of life in an 80-minute film. Mm-hmm. And you had to find those little commonalities to, 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 so they, they, they each could sort of fit in and tell a story. And, I mean, I think you did that absolutely beautifully. Um, well, a lot of it was working with my editor, Ann Stein, who was absolutely amazing. It's, it's so great to have a, a, a real collaboration. You know, I have, to, I, I have to compliment Ann on the editing and the pacing that you develop. There is never a moment that you want to even blink your eyes as you're watching this documentary. 
It is absolutely riveting, John. You don't want to look away I from the screen. That. You don't want to miss a second of seeing the life lived with every wrinkle on their faces or every time their eyes light up with a happy memory. Uh, it's extremely, extremely emotionally powerful watching this. That's what, you know, I, I borrow a line from uh, uh, Jonathan Hawk who did a documentary called Survive in Advance about North Carolina State. It's, it's ostensibly a sports film, but it's not. It's about Jim Valvano. And Valvano, as he's dying, says in a speech, if you can think, laugh, and have your emotions move you to tears in the same day, that's a heck of a day. And to me, that's this film. This film does those three things for me, still. And that's why I think it's powerful. I, I view it as a, I laugh, I think, and I cry every time I see it. Yeah. I, I mean, it is just, there were countless times, like, I'm putting my hand over my mouth, just aghast at some of the things that the women are talking about. And then you, you find the images to punctuate that. And mm-hmm. it, you really, you give them a voice that will carry on for generations is what you have done. Look, that's the goal, and that's why we try to do these things. And people like you who are putting it out there is what we need, because everybody that sees this film is having that reaction. This film resonates, and this film, to me, you know, not to be overly dramatic, I think we need more empathy in this world, and I think you cannot watch this film and not be more empathetic to those around you. Well, and that's, that's one of the things, uh, I think it was Eva who talks about, you know, or Renee, when she talks about, you know, she thinks about Sudan, Darfur, yeah, Cambodia, um, and says, almost enraged, didn't people learn anything, you know, from the Holocaust? Didn't people learn anything? History is replaying itself over and over again. No, we know. We know that there's a, there's a, there's a lack of fact going on now. We, we, we always sort of assumed this was real, but now we know for a fact yeah. that people are forgetting that when half of, when half of the United States doesn't, can't identify a single concentration camp, that's a problem. We, we're, we're not teaching fact. And films like this, which also teach emotionally, I think combine the two. We can have a historically accurate film mm-hmm. and still, still reach an emotional core. Absolutely. You know, what got you interested in the story of Auschwitz to begin with, back when you started with swimming in Auschwitz? It takes us to Mainline Reform Synagogue back in Wynwood. <laughs> when I was eight, my Hebrew school carpool driver was an Auschwitz survivor. Oh, my God. And I don't remember a single thing he told us, but I know that whatever it was got us interested, and it didn't scare us. And then, you know, my bar mitzvah speech was about Simon Wiesenthal. You know, I just became I just became really interested in the topic, and then for swimming announcements, there was a show about the history of Jewish comedy, and Billy Crystal says, "Yeah, you put two Jews in a room, they make each other laugh. That's the history of Jewish comedy." And I tried to extrapolate that room, and I said, "Was there laughter in a concentration camp?" And that started a decade-long research project. Wow! So that's it. it all started young. Wow! You know, talk about that Philadelphia education. Um, <laughs> there's something to it. I'm telling you, no, there there's really something is. to it. You look at like what happened in Parkland. Those kids have Holocaust study in their school, and you wonder how these kids can move on and activate and 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 do what they're doing. I think a lot of it is they understand this material. I really do. I think there's a connection. They understand social history. justice, empathy. They have they 
study history. They understand it. Um, you know, and there again, that falls on our educational system. Who Who is not teaching these things? Everybody should well, be taught. 40, 41 states aren't teaching it. I know. Nine states in, in the United States have mandatory Holocaust education. And that's a shame. That's a sad, yeah. sad commentary. And because it's not just that. It, it, be, through this education, we can access so many other things. People can see themselves in these survivors. You don't have to be from Poland and Jewish to relate to Rena or Renee. You, you have underprivileged kids everywhere, people who are feeling like others everywhere, mm-hmm. who can relate to them. Yeah. They're a guide. Yeah, I mean, th- they truly are. And the way you have put all this together, t- it, it makes it, it's very relatable, it's very resonant. No matter who you are, to watch this documentary. I think so. I don't think this is a Jewish story at all. Oh, no. And it's funny, while I think it's, while I think it's heavy, there's a heaviness to part of it. I think I think this is a journey. I think life. I think this film is like life. We have all the wonderful and all the bad. It's all mixed up together, and it's a worthwhile experience. And to see what these women, how they triumphed, not just how they survived, but how they thrived. Right. They thrived. Right. You know, they did not let their life be stolen from them, and they didn't sit and and let life pass them by either. And they're, they're incredible role models, and they're incredible I- ideals for us to follow. No question. So, so now, how are you going to follow this up? I mean, the, <laughs> the film opened in New York on April 20th. It opened in L.A. this past Friday on, on right. May the 4th. May the, may the 4th be with this. May the 4th th- be with us. Yes. I, 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 I fought the Avengers, and I fought that, yeah. I'll tell <laughs> you, you had a tough opening day. So now, well, we, we were trying to. We, our, our ad campaign, which was all viral, was Avengers and After Auschwitz. They're both superhero movies, but our superheroes are real. That's a that is a brilliant, brilliant marketing campaign. But unfortunately, nobody from Marvel sued us, so I couldn't get any publicity out of it. Darn! Ah, oh, <laughs> darn! We we're hoping. Uh, you, you Look, should... I'm gonna. The, the film is going to stay in theaters. If, if people are interested, they should go to our website, which is afterauschwitz.com, see where it's playing. I think we're in 14 cities still right now. We're growing. There will be educational materials in the fall coming out. A DVD will come out in the fall. You know, we're at the point now where we've done great. The next step is to take it bigger, and we need that sort of inflection point of energy and media to push it to the next level. Mm-hmm. That's what I'd like to do. So every little bit helps. Anybody that can tweet it out, go find us, tell friends. That's what it takes. And for those that don't know how to spell Auschwitz, it's A-U-S-C-H-W-I-T-Z. And for those of us who don't know how to spell it, that's another reason they should go see it. If you had to have help spelling it, you need to go see the movie. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, so now, you know, as you push after Auschwitz out into the world and into bigger and bigger Mm -hmm. levels, are you working on another documentary, something that would a follow up to this thread that you have going, or will you venture into something totally new? You know, I'd like to get back to comedy at some point. That's where I came from. Mm-hmm. I don't know when that's going to happen. I have I have two more Holocaust themed projects that are in the in the in the hopper. Honestly, I kind of would like partnership for the next project. It's really hard to do stuff alone. It's hard to sit and stare at your computer by yourself. It's like a Naked Lunch, the Cronenberg piece. It's like, yes. you know, you, you, it just, it, it, it's exhausting. So I'd like someone to come in and work with me 
in some capacity. But we'll see. If I stay in the Holocaust genre, that's fine, too. There's Everybody you meet in that world, there's amazing stories still to be told. Mm-hmm. I, I had the chance to go to Rwanda. There's a story that I'd like to do in Rwanda. So I'll find the next project's there. Well, John, you have an open invitation. You better come back on the show. I will talk. Absolutely. I will talk. I wish you. I had you in the editing room. You get my film so well. I would, <laughs> I would have invited you in. You sound like Dion Taylor. Dion brings me into the editing room with him when he's doing his films. Um, <laughs> seriously, and there are a couple other guys that do. No, too. but I'm not, I'm not kidding. <laughs> but hey, look, I am there. Whatever you need, John. You know, I will go into the that's editing. That's really for you. I'll tell. You, I will go into the editing bay with you. I will tell you that sucks. You need to fix it, um, or yes, this works. Um, but no, seriously, I would love to sit down and do a longer piece with you and get it up online and send it out to some of my outlets. Um, you know, in addition to having you back on the show again, I mean, yeah, this- any, any, anything at any time, because this is important, and I love the fact that you get it, you get it, you get it deep in your soul. I love that, and we need more people like this to to share it out. Well, I can't thank you enough, John. This has been a real a real privilege having you on today. And I look forward to talking to you again very, very soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but everybody, After Auschwitz, in theaters now. Go to AfterAuschwitz.com to find out where it's playing near you. And I want to see DVD extras. Oh, we're going to do that. We're going we're gonna to have so much fun. And there's stuff on the website, too. If you go to the website, I've got treats on the website. I have been, and there are treats. There are. John, thank you so much, and I'll talk to you oh, again thank soon. You, Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. And that was John Keen, uh, John Keen after Auschwitz. Two, three great films we talked about today. Eugenio Derbez, Overboard. Family, 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 fun. You can take the whole family to it. Um, it's a comedy. Of course, then... After Auschwitz and Liberated are not comedies, but very important subject matters. Um, thanks to John Keane. Thanks to Benji Nolo. And, of course, my dear, dear Eugenio Derbez. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Yeah.